The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Alan Branhagen today. He is the Director of Horticulture at Powell Gardens, which is located just 40 miles southeast of Kansas City, Missouri. What intrigues me so much about Powell Gardens and interviewing Mr. Branhagen is that I had no idea that Powell Gardens had the nation's largest edible landscape where every tree, shrub, flower, and ground cover contributes to the story of where our food comes from. So without further ado, Mr. Branhagen, welcome. Thank you for having me visit today. Absolutely. I have so many questions, and I hope we'll get through them all. But first, I want to start with your expertise. You are the Director of Horticulture at Powell Gardens, but you also have a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture from Iowa State. You have a master's in landscape architecture from Louisiana State University with an emphasis on planning, plants, and garden design. I want to know what led you to landscape architecture and what it is exactly. Well, landscape architecture is about creating beautiful spaces and landscapes. And I think growing up in, I actually grew up in a small town, Decorah, Iowa, where Seed Savers Exchange is. Yeah. And just loving nature, I I really had to work at a botanical garden because I'm so interested in very intense and diverse landscapes. And landscape architects do a wide range of planning and doing everything from designing plantings around a shopping center parking lot to creating, again, beautiful gardens. And obviously, with my intense interest in gardens and nature, I like to work with a lot of detail. And working at a botanical garden was just perfect for me. Yeah. Well, I love that Powell Gardens has this focus on edible landscape, because if I was in charge, I would take out the majority of lawns that we have. I mean, certainly we do need wide open spaces for visual beauty and also for playing games. But I think that so much of our landscape is dedicated to lawns, which are fairly chemically, heavily dependent. I used to get the ads in the mail for True Green and all of these companies <laughs> that I know. You know. It's kind of interesting how they changed their name, right, from Chemlon well, to True yeah. Green. But they're applying a lot of chemicals that can harm wildlife, can harm the microbes in the soil, and ultimately human and even pet health. And so I love that you've got this landscape that's dedicated to edibles, and while you're not certified organic, you are moving in that direction. Is that correct? Yes, uh, that's correct. We manage the Heartland Harvest Garden completely organically, and we do have quite a bit of lawn here at Powell Gardens, and even that we do not put any chemicals on. And we, you know, it's funny, people get freaked out about dandelions, but to me it's like they're this beautiful expression of spring, And they provide nectar for all kinds of neat pollinators and beneficial insects. And, you know, then they're, they're kind of gone. So, and then of course we also embrace things like white and Dutch clover so that, you know, they actually um, naturally provide nitrogen as legumes. So improving the soil and uh, again, provide nectar sources for butterflies and bees and that kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned dandelions because dandelion greens are delicious, especially when they're young <laughs> That's right. in the salad. They're, you know, and there's a, a nutritional advantage to having bitters in our diet. So I, I think that having just a few little sprigs of dandelion leaves can certainly add to the pleasure of the salad and the flowers, certainly. I agree with you. I mean, it's the same thing with animals. You know, which animals do we choose to harvest and which which animals do we choose to say, oh, no, they're so sweet, let them be. <laughs> so it's the same thing with plants. Okay, so you've got it. I will mention there are special varieties of dandelions grown just for their greens. And, and, you know, we have them on occasion in the harvest garden. We have such a rotation, we do about 500 varieties each year, and obviously there are thousands of varieties to display. So, you know, at any particular season, anything might not be on display, uh, you know, that's a seasonal plant like that. Right. So, okay, let's talk about some of the plants that you have there now. And what kind of diversity do you have in the edible landscape? Well, we probably display the most diverse collection of our food plants in a garden setting in the United States. It's not a research station. Um, there's about 2,000 permanent varieties, so things that are, you know, perennials from ground covers to uh, herbs and edible flowers all the way to various vines from, you know, grapes and hardy kiwi and akebias and things like that to, you know, everything, the shade trees like pecans, you know, a huge diverse crop of fruit trees from, you know, I don't even know, close to 100 varieties of apples. And, of course, we like to focus. We're not a research station. It's not to show every single one that will grow here, but some of the better selections that grow in our area and also making people aware of the diversity. Like in the apple, there's varieties that are meant for fresh eating and varieties for storage and varieties for cider. And, you know, that there's all these interesting uses for a lot of these different plants. I don't know if you saw the article that had been in National Geographic a while ago, but it described how many varieties we used to have 100 years ago of different food crops and how many we have today. So we had like hundreds of varieties of lettuce Mm -hmm. and beets, and now we have less than 100 of of all of those. And I'm sure you were exposed to that in Decora with seed savers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, do you do any kind of seed saving there or do you get some of these unique varieties and try to reestablish them on your landscape? Yes, we, you know, have a lot of both uh, seed savers plants and from like Baker Creek, which is in Missouri, another wonderful place like that. And we we do some of our own seed saving ourselves and we always watch for any natural variations in plants and we've actually found a new tomato seedling that we actually like and are kind of saving the seed on to to keep that variety as well. Oh, that's great. So I know the climate in Missouri is challenging for any gardener. (laughs) We call it manic depressive. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to describe it. Well, so we're so tempted, right, to go and use these products. You know, we've got a fungus, we've got a pest, we've got a weed. How do you deal with pest management without using harmful chemicals? Well, it started with the initial design of the garden. I reviewed all these edibles, looked at what, well, you know, there's a lot of research about companion plantings that work with them. Some people say it doesn't really matter, but I think it it really does have an impact. It adds a lot of diversity a lot of these companion plants actually harbor beneficial insects that help deter a specific pest of you know like apples there's alternate hosts 
for some of their beneficial insects that help control some of the issues are, are in wild roses and strawberries. And if you plant those types of things together, I mean, you just see a difference. And then, of course, just providing so many what we call insectary plants that have a lot of nectar, like a lot of the mountain mints. I don't know if you know the genus Pycnanthum. There's like seven species native to Missouri. They attract incredible diversity of you know, wasps and bees, and when you look at the life cycles of all these things, you know, some of them are caterpillar hunters, some of them are grasshopper hunters, and they just create this great web of life around you that just helps protect the plants. There's just no doubt about it. Plus, help pollinate everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I get this sentiment too often of this fear of bugs. And I don't know if you work with kids especially, but adults as well. You know, how do we move ourselves away from fear of bugs to starting to recognize that if we just have a nice planting, a variety of plants, that the beneficial insects will win out? Am I correct about that? Right. Yes, and and that's what one of the neatest things about that garden is you're starting to see, you know, we interpret that in the garden People are experiencing it. Yeah, we do have a lot of children and adults that are, you know, have a little fear of bees. But after walking through that garden, they're a little more exposed to it, understand them, and know that, you know, they're not going to hurt you unless you, like, really grab or molest them. You know, they really don't want anything to do with us. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for, say, an urban gardener, a suburban gardener, is this idea that you've got limited kinds of landscapes, right? So you've got maybe some people will say, well, I really can't grow tomatoes, say, because I have too much shade in my lawn. Or we have problems with deer encroachment, in addition to the normal everyday pests and funguses that we have to deal with. So I'm curious to know, first, let's talk about deer. I've tried just about everything in my garden. My latest attempt is to go to the barbershops and get bags of hair, to sprinkle around my garden. Have you found, you know, other than a big fence, do you have any tricks to keep deer out of our food? That is a challenge. Uh, The Harvest Garden does have a deer fence around it, and fencing out uh, is definitely one of the best methods. I think working with some of the plants that they really don't like, like lavenders, and mixing plants that they do like between those definitely does help deter and let's see what are some of my other friends have, you know, the motion detectors that set off sprinklers or something like that to help scare the deer. Um, having deer scares and moving them around so they never get used to them has had some benefit. But I still think the fence or, you know, having a dog um, also is uh, very beneficial. Is hair helpful? I've heard that it is helpful. The only thing is I think they get used to certain things. So you mm. have to be kind of creative in maybe changing your source of it or moving it around or something like that is what I understand. Again, I've not, I've not tried that myself. Okay. Let's look at the other challenge then, and that would be shade. Are there mm-hmm. some food crops that like shade? And when I talk about shade, I guess we should kind of define <laughs> yeah. that, right? Because it seems like every time I look at a, a seed catalog specific mm-hmm. to food, most of them say, you know, this plant really prefers at least six to eight hours of sun a day. Well, what right. if you've got shade? Well, I have a woodland garden at my own house. And so there actually are a lot of mostly native plants 
that do well kind of in the understory, not, you know, really, really dense shade, but open shade. There's everything from gooseberries are a good example. The serviceberry tree, you know, a natural understory tree has delicious fruit in early summer. The same goes with mulberries, especially the native Morris rubra, which is actually one of the, the best of all the mulberries. It, you know, it, it really thrives in the understory of a forest in shade. And even blueberries, they can't have full dense shade, but they will take a lot of shade. You know, they're again natural in uh, our native woodlands, and so they are another crop. You're not going to get such a bumper crop in shade, but you will get some. And so I have blueberries in my my own yard as well. So some of the currants, uh, like the clove currant, another one. I'm just trying to think around my yard. Of course, the the native raspberries, black raspberries and blackberries and dewberries, same thing. You know, they um, may not have a full crop as if, you know, on the edge of, of a woods or with some sun, but, you know, you'll get a little bit of production. Some of the herbs, especially some of the mints, which we all know you have to be a little bit careful with, also do well in shade. But, I think of things like mints, how come, you know, we talk about how invasive they are and a problem, but really when you think about the standard ground covers people are using, like English ivy and vinca uh, and pachysandra, those are horrible invasives that provide nothing for us, whereas a mint, you know, you can use it, and it also, they flower and attract all kinds of neat beneficial insects, so... There's yeah. my feel, I guess, on shade. There are some things, but in general, most vegetables, yeah, prefer full sun. So, but you're you're not out of luck. You 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 have especially those natives to help you out with an edible landscape and shade. Well, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Alan Branhagen. He is director of horticulture at Powell Gardens, which is about 40 miles southeast of Kansas City, Missouri. And when I learned that Powell Gardens had the nation's largest edible landscape, I knew that I had to have Mr. Branhagen on the show. And I'm using the half hour to ask a lot of my challenging questions, but I suspect that our listeners share them. I'm glad you mentioned mint. I have what I like to call runaway mint, as well as garlic chives that I got one start, a one start plant, which I love. They're delicious, chopped up in omelets. And I make an herb butter where I take a lot of my herbs and I blend it with organic butter. It's a wonderful spread for bread. But I've, I've gotten to the point now where I've got my garden, and I'm sure many others share this dilemma. The garden becomes overrun with these plants. Mm-hmm. What is the best approach for getting rid of them, just digging <laughs> them out? Oh, that is that is a challenge. We do have garlic chives in the harvest garden, and, and, of course, you know we have a wonderful core of volunteers that help, and we do make sure that they are deadheaded. I always try to say make sure you deadhead. Yes, you do have to spend considerable time if you've let them get away. Go ahead and dig out what you can, and then just be sure when they bloom next year to deadhead them and compost the blossoms so that they don't go to seed. With mints, we have this one section of the harvest garden called the pear promenade, and mints are a great companion plant to pears. And so we have this wonderful collection of, I don't know how many, probably more than a dozen varieties of mints as you walk along there. And we just have little trenches kind of between the varieties to kind of, you know, watch their spread and a lot of times I do tell people, you know, if you have a small landscape, you know, try to grow them in a container or something where they are contained. The removal of them is persistence, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I have had some go awry, but, you know, I do catch up with them eventually and, and pull them off. 
And a lot of them aren't very drought tolerant, and these recent droughts have actually set them back. They really like more moist conditions or even wet conditions to thrive. So even that, having a drier area will help keep them in bounds. So mm-hmm. That's good to that know. That answers your question. Yeah, it does. And just for our listeners who may not know what deadheading is, the best time to cut, and we're talking about cutting blossoms or spent blossoms right. before they go to seed. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I have to just add here that my garlic chives do have a beautiful flower that attracts, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I don't know what yeah. kind of insects they are. They look like a bee, but I know that I'm doing the right thing by bringing them to the landscape. But I, I also, you know, I, it, there, it seems like there's a window of deadheading that I must meet. And, it, of course, I, you can tell from the overrun nature of these plants that I've missed that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be challenging. And, and chives is the same way. It's just such a delicious plant and such a great insectary plant. But, yeah, seeds itself all over. I know they have made some new, at least on chives, there is a brand new selection that apparently does not produce seed. And we actually got that in this season and are going to test it. As far as I know, it's just a natural selection. There was no no manipulation on getting it, which, of course, that always makes us nervous. Uh, we try to not, well, we don't have any genetically modified plants in the garden. Mm, that's good to know. Now, you mentioned the pear-mint relationship, and I have to share mm-hmm. a, just a little story with you. I have a good friend, Dan Kelly, who is the owner of a beautiful farm in Canton, Missouri. He's the only organic apple grower in the state of Missouri thus far. Mm-hmm. But I visited his farm, and he has a wide variety of apples, and he plants Queen Anne's lace in between the rows mm-hmm. for the very same reason of attracting beneficial insects. Now, I want to ask about fruit trees, however, because, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I'm coming from the place of I'm an urban-slash-suburban gardener. I have mm-hmm. a, a small landscape, and I'm assuming that I should go with dwarf fruit trees rather than semi-dwarf. Right, absolutely. Okay, in order to get the most fruit <clears throat> per square foot. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And our, our, we call it the uh, apple court in the Harvest Garden. It's a really interesting design. It's a play off the beginning of the Yellow Brick Road in The Wizard of Oz. So there's this beautiful sculpture in the center, and then spiraling out is the walk through the garden. And in the center are the low-vigor dwarf rootstock apples, so you can get ideas for like an urban landscape of the ones that you know fit in the tiniest spaces. And as you spiral outward on this brick path, the varieties of apples uh, it goes to semi-dwarfs, and then we actually do have a few standards around uh, the outer ring of this. And, of course, apple li- apples live for, you know, they can live for 100 years, which is really cool. And I hope um, one day I can see that, you know, the garden's only been in the, in the ground five years now. As it all grows together, it should be a really, really cool landscape when it's mature. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I would like to see in my lifetime is for public parks to be more landscape more towards this edible nature. So I see, um, and I'm sure you shiver when you see these as well, these Bradford pears planted everywhere. (laughs) And they're lovely. They have pretty white flowers, but, you know, much like so many of the plants we've been talking about, well, but they don't do anything, like the vinca, for example. Right. They're invasive. And, yeah, they've become the worst invasive uh, woody plant in our area here. So, yeah, it's going to be a really, it's almost an ecological disaster in the making right now if people don't quit planting them and start removing them. Yeah. And, yeah, we you know, we promote, why don't you plant an, an Asian pear? 
I mean, the edible Asian pear. And the reason the edible, you know, the, the ones grown for fruit are not invasive is because, you know, the little, the calorie pears, the Bradford pears have those little tiny pearlets that the birds eat and then, of course, disperse far and wide. But the big fruit of the Asian pears don't get dispersed. And so they're not a problem. And we have really nice collection of those too. There's, and actually one, one of the things we're doing in the harvest garden is also looking at the ornamental or beautiful character of all these different selections. Some of them have gorgeous bronze new leaves that you don't think about. Some of them do have showier flowers and other varieties. And if, if you do actually go to Powell Gardens, we have a, a blog you can search back through. And I think two years ago I did a really nice blog about that uh, aspect if you want to look more in detail on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to heavily recommend your website and, of course, visiting the gardens because as a dietitian, right, I always have these conversations with people about really good food being not affordable. And one of the ways we can make it affordable is for us to grow our own. And that's why I think learning through places mm-hmm. like your garden and, and seeing an edible mm-hmm. landscape working edible landscape we can feel mm-hmm. like hey if you can do it i can do it too so that's, that's right it's very encouraging well one of the issues that was brought out why we don't have more fruit bearing trees in public places is because people say they make a mess and attract yellow jackets or bees and i think oh, oh my I know. goodness how do we you're 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 yeah, hitting a wild chord with me right now that we're battling with i don't know what you want to call them the urban arborists they want to plant our streets, our urban spaces with all these pretty much worthless trees like Japanese Zelkovas. They provide absolutely nothing for nature, no caterpillar feeds on them. The the seeds they produce are just little granule-type things, London plane trees and all this kind of thing. And I think now with the back-to-nature movement in the city, you've got beekeepers in the city, you've got urban farmers in the city, we have to change that paradigm and have to start adding trees that provide nectar and provide for nature. And it's starting to get out there. There's a gentleman named, I'm sure you've heard of Doug, Douglas Tallamy. He wrote a book called Bringing Nature Home. And uh, I think that, that that aspect, you know, going beyond just the edible, but also just embracing nature, which embraces the edible, um, it's getting out there and I think it's going to change. Well, we also have hungry, malnourished children, and we have more children, for example, in the free and reduced-price lunch program, meaning that they're living at or near the poverty line, and we know that good, wholesome food is expensive for these families, and many times not even accessible. You know, maybe they have like a little convenience store. They're living in what we call food deserts. And through edible landscaping, I mean, I see just so much potential. So kudos to you for helping to train these urban arborists into understanding the value of bringing these fruit trees and edible plants to the landscape. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up with you, because I see it as a problem now and I fear that it will become worse, is pesticide drift. An understanding or a misunderstanding about some of these sprays. I remember going to my farmer's market and asking one of the one of the older growers, um, you know, if, how they raise their food. And I was told pretty much organically, except maybe for a little bit of seven dust. Of course, <laughs> right, seven kills right. bees, so that would not be um, producing food organically. But there's also this issue of drift and a serious issue. I know I have friends that live outside of town near where a lot of the genetically engineered corn and soy are produced, and they've had some drift already causing crop loss, 
but I fear that the new 2,4-D resistant crops that are, seems like they're working their way through the approval process. I think uh, right. USDA, the comment period at USDA is closed. EPA is now taking a look at them. I fear drift, and I wonder, because of your location, you know, you're not in the city, you're outside mm-hmm. the city. Have you experienced pesticide or herbicide drift on your property there? Yes, we have, but it was basically by a, a right at power line right away. In terms of fields, we're, you know, several miles to any crop fields. But I do notice, I mean, I live next to the gardens, and I definitely notice drift, but I think it's mostly from neighbors misusing, you know, things like dandelion killers. I always tell people there are two wonderful canaries in the mine shaft to put in your landscape to not lie about what's going on around you. And one is the redbud because it is so sensitive. You get the curling tips to the leaves, and it really will tell you what's going on around you. And then, of course, grapes are also extremely sensitive. And and both those are really, really sensitive to 2,4-D, and so that really scares me if the genetically modified with that at you know aspect is in place because I think it will be extremely damaging. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the monocultures that come along with those kinds of landscapes or, you know, where we're just growing mm-hmm. one or two crops and mm-hmm. the beneficial insects that we've lost. Well, Mr. Branhagen, we just have about three minutes left, so I want to give you a chance to talk about anything that I may not have brought up that you want us to know either about Powell Gardens in general or the edible landscape specifically. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Powell Gardens, our mission is we are an experience that embraces the Midwest spirit of place. And, you know, what better place to have uh, here in the heartland, America's largest edible landscape. And the second component of our mission is the importance of plants in our lives. And we all need to remember that every single thing we eat um, is because of a plant. And don't forget that Every breath you take as well that, you know, photosynthesis is the most important chemical process on earth and without we wouldn't be here. So we like to inspire people about how important plants are and our Heartland Harvest Garden, you know, we, when we designed it out, we never tried to be the largest edible landscape in, in the country. It was just something that uh, one of our authors, we have actually two authors' gardens in that where we invited people, renowned authors from around the country, and one of them is Rosalind Creasy, who wrote The Complete Guide to Edible Landscaping. She has one of those gardens, and she's the one that christened it the largest edible landscape. But we just wanted to create, you know, a really thorough, beautiful place to inspire people about getting edible plants in their own landscape, to think of them in a different manner that, you know, we've kind of got this, the vegetables need to be in these certain vegetable patches that may or may not look good, and fruit trees need to be in these select rows, and, you know, you can really use them just like you use any other plant. Uh, Look at their, look outside the box, look at their inherent beauty and character, and, you know, use them just like any other ornamental, and they're really going to provide you know, a lot more sustainability to a landscape. Now, can we lead people to the HowellGardens.org website, and will that provide us with all the information that we need? That sure is a good start. It is our, you know, I think we have a great website, and, you know, make sure you look at the blog, and you can go back through it and, you know, search anything that has to do with edible plants or the Heartland Harvest Garden and see some interesting topics that we've shared through the past five years that that garden's been open. 
This has been a wonderful half hour. I want to thank you so much, Alan Branhagen, Director of Horticulture at the Powell Gardens in Kingsville, Missouri, which is about 40 miles southeast of Kansas City. And if you're in the area, please come by. And if you're not, create your own edible landscapes wherever you are. Thank you so much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners, too, for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Mr. Branhagen, for not only being my guest, but for helping to spread the passion for edible landscaping. You are welcome. <laughs>